Amen. If you would join me in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 is going to be our passage of Scripture this morning. I apologize, I think it says Acts 4 on your bulletin, but it will be uh, in Acts 5. If you want to find that uh, in your pew Bible, that's on page 765. Uh, This is the final message in our Faith and Doubt series, and I hope that this series has built your faith, whether you're someone who's far from God or in relationship with Him, whether you're trending towards Him or away from Him. I hope that this series has helped answer some questions for you, helped you solidify your faith. Uh, Today's message is going to be directed more towards believers uh, in the room. Uh, but similarly, I pray that it'll be helpful for anyone who's here uh, to help you understand a little bit more. It'll be beneficial uh, to you wherever you're at. You know, something we've talked about over the past couple of months is that 86% of people in our community identify as Christian. And I've kind of wrestled with that idea. And uh, just recently, Pastor Eric and I were uh, blessed to be able to be on a call uh, with Pastor Church Planner Stephen Kimbrell in Irvine, California, talking about discipleship. And he used an analogy that I'm going to borrow from him. He said, you know, if you say the word barbecue, everyone pictures something different. For me, someone who my dad grew up in North Carolina, my grandmother would make barbecue. It was like vinegary, like white, almost pork barbecue. And you would have it on a sandwich with maybe um, some Texas Pete hot sauce and coleslaw, right? And for some of you, what I'm describing is like so foreign. You've never had that or thought of that when you hear the term barbecue. For some people, you hear barbecue and you think uh, pork that is covered in like a really dark and sugary sauce, right? Some of you, you think Ribs. Some of you, you think Korean barbecue or something along those lines. And because this idea of what barbecue is is so regional, if you go to a barbecue chain, they have sauces that are named after regions or cities, right? There's the Memphis style sauce. There's the Kansas City style sauce because everyone has this different idea of what barbecue is. And the same thing happens when I say the word Christian. When I say the word Christian, people have a different picture in their minds of what that means. If I say the word evangelical, people have a different picture in their minds of what that means. Last year, we spent the entire year going through the writings of Luke, looking at the Gospel of Luke, and then looking at the book of Acts. And the reason that we did that is we wanted to get get back to the basics of Christianity. We wanted to go to ground zero of Jesus' life and ground zero of the birth of the church. And that's what Luke did. He went back and talked to the people who were there, interviewed them, and put together this story of Jesus' life and then the story of the birth of the church. So in the book of Luke, we have the elemental life of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we have the elemental birth of Christianity. For some of you, to get real barbecue, it means to go to Memphis or to go to Kansas City or to go to Smithfield, North Carolina. For Luke, it was to go back to Jerusalem to get where Christianity started. And in Acts chapter 5, what we have is this presentation of the very early church at work. 
what they experienced and what it meant. So start reading with me in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest desired to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The church here in Acts 5 is experiencing yet another wave of incredible growth. And the reason for that is because in verses 1 to 12, something has happened that has put the fear of God in the church. Everyone in the church is moved and is in awe. And as a result of that, there is this powerful experience and the church begins to expand and to grow. And men and women are joining the church at an incredibly fast pace. People are coming from outside cities and towns, bringing their friends and their neighbors, their sick loved ones. People are being healed and restored. And what we see in verses 17 to 18 is the chief priests hear about this and they get upset. And they throw the apostles into prison. And the next morning they come in to deal with them and they're gone because they have miraculously been released through the night. And instead of in prison where they'd left them, they're back in the temple teaching again. And so they bring the apostles in for another trial. And Peter speaks in verses 26 to 32. Let's read that. Then the captain with the officers brought them in without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us, this man being Jesus. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The chief priests hear this and they're furious. Verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And here Gamaliel stands up and says, let's talk about this for a moment before you guys do anything rash. And he gives them some really wise counsel. He says to them, starting in verse 35, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And so they listen to him and they agree with him. 
And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, I love that they agree with him. Like, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't mess with these guys, but we're going to beat them up and then tell them that they can leave. And they beat them up and tell them not to speak the name of Jesus. But I want you to see that the way the apostles react in verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing, rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Uh, have you ever told a friend um, that they should really try out a restaurant? And they do, and you go, hey, how was it? And they're like, ah, that wasn't that great. Right? I found that sometimes this happens because I tell someone that they should try a restaurant and then they go to that restaurant and they order absolutely the wrong thing. Right? Like, if I tell you that El Maguey, you know, kind of the crown jewel of Warwick County here in Boonville, right? If you don't know where to go to lunch after church, go to El Maguey, across from Walmart, right? If I tell you you ought to go to El Maguey and you go there and you get a burger and fries, it's on you, Okay? <laughs> Right? You ordered the wrong thing. If I tell you about a great sushi restaurant and you go there and you get chicken tenders, right? You probably didn't have the full experience. And it's not because that restaurant isn't great. It's because you don't like sushi and you don't know how to order, right? For many people, I'm convinced for many people, the reason that Christianity is not something that's appealing to them is because their experience with Christianity is not what I would say is Christianity. And I'm convinced that the greatest obstacle that we have to overcome for reproducing the gospel and seeing people come to know Jesus in this community is for people to try Christianity because they think they've already tried it. They think they've already experienced it or they think they already have it, right? The truth is they don't like sushi because they had gas station sushi, okay? Right? They don't like barbecue because they had Alabama barbecue. Okay? They don't, they don't want Christianity because they haven't had authentic Christianity. They've had something that has the label of Christianity over someone's selfish motivations and desires. They've had the label of Christianity over something that is far from Jesus, far from Christianity altogether. They've had the wish version of Christianity. You say, what, is, what, what do you mean the wish version? Um, there's a company called Wish, if you've, if you've heard of them, right? And they offer stuff for like really cheap rates. Like you can buy things from them and it's super cheap. And then it arrives and you find out that's why it's so cheap. Because it's, it's not even real, right? It falls apart. It looks good in a picture, but it, it's not real. And I think if we go back to authentic, real, original, elemental Christianity, we find something that is powerful, that changes lives. And I'm not talking about Christianity that, that, that meets your preferences. Because I think sometimes we fall into this thinking like, oh, if, if we can engineer the church to be just exactly what people want, then they'll find it appealing. 
If we can engineer the church to meet the larger demographic of people, like, like they'll find the church, like this is the church where the coffee is the kind that I like and the pastor dresses like I dress and he's into the same sports that I'm into and cheers for the same teams that I do and I'll like it because all of the preferences meet my desires. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Christianity that hits all of the right spots for you. I'm not talking about Christianity that meets all of your preferences. I'm talking about Christianity that contains truth that changes lives. Now this chapter, Acts chapter 5, is not giving us a recipe for that Christianity because that's in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And in Acts 1 and 2, we see how it comes together. What we have happening here in Acts chapter 5 is we see how when that recipe comes together, how it is presented and how it is it interacts with an opposing world. What it looks like when it faces persecution and opposition. And this is fitting because we need true faith. We need real, authentic Christianity. And we need to understand how that real, authentic Christianity interacts in a post-Christian culture. Because that is what we're entering into. We're entering into a post-Christian culture. And the fact that 86% of people in our area consider themselves a Christian speaks to the fact because there's really three kind of phases that a culture goes through. There's a first culture, which is pre-Christianity. That's a place where nobody really knows the name of Jesus. That's a place where someone needs to go and share the name of Jesus. And then once that happens, Christianity begins to grow, Christianity begins to flourish, and it becomes very normal to go to church. And because it's normal to go to church, lots of people go to church, even if they don't really understand what Christianity is. And lots of people take on the term or the identity of Christianity, even though they don't know Jesus. And that's when you have a Christianized culture. And because you have this Christianized culture where nobody really knows what Christianity actually is, but they think that they're it, Christianity starts to go out of favor. Because everybody's had the rip-off, facade, fake version of it. And they walk away from it, or they deconstruct it, and you enter into a post-Christian culture where my parents were Christians, or I grew up Christian, but I'm not a Christian. That's what the apostles are experiencing. They're experiencing an opposing culture, a culture that doesn't want them teaching the name of Jesus and that is what we are quickly entering into, a culture that is opposed to the name of Jesus. And they're about to die. We're about to see the martyrdom of the apostles. Now, these guys will be martyred later on, but it almost happens really, really early. And what stops it is Gamaliel stands up and he says, listen, if this is real, it won't last. And he gives them examples of other teachers and preachers who have gathered a following, and then when hardship comes, it's revealed that it isn't, it isn't anything lasting. And some of them have, have gathered a lot of teachers. He says this one guy, he had 400 men following him, but then when the teacher died, everyone dispersed. He says, if it's real, it'll be resilient. 
If it's real, it'll last. What Gamaliel here is saying is, listen, Jesus has been killed, and whether or not Gamaliel believes that Jesus has risen from the dead, he knows that he's not there, and he's saying this movement will fade now that the leader is gone if it isn't a work of God. You see, true faith is resilient. And because true faith is resilient, true faith is then revealed. What we've experienced over the last few years in the American church is a crisis that has revealed true faith. It became incredibly inconvenient to go to church for a very long season of time. And what that did is it made a distinction between faith that was performative and faith that was transformative. Made a distinction between faith that was a show and faith that was real. The pandemic has been a stress test. And what we have remaining is what is real. Just this past week, another church uh, that I've rejoiced in watching them grow and reach people in a place in New England that seemed just so dark and resistant to the gospel, they announced that they're closing And the reason they've announced that they're closing is because a week before, a report was shared that this pastor who I respected, and and I had read some of his material, and listened to his podcast, it was revealed that he had misappropriated funds, that he had bullied staff, that he had lied, outright lied, about how many people were attending his church so that he could be on a list in a magazine. And the stress test of the pandemic brought all of this to light. It revealed what was real and what wasn't. The challenges and hardships we face reveal what is real and what isn't. Now, let's be careful. Because the last thing we should think is, okay, true faith is is held by perfect people. Because that's not the case. Gamaliel says, be careful what you do with these men. And who's the men that he's talking about? The guys that we just read about throughout the Gospel of Luke in the beginning of Acts, were they perfect? No. They were far from perfect. They made lots of mistakes. And it isn't even that they were imperfect and now they're perfect. It isn't even like they were really a mess, but then they hung out with Jesus and the Holy Spirit came and they're doing everything right. Because the very next chapter, Acts chapter 6, is going to reveal to us how they're dropping the ball on caring for some of the members of their congregation. And four chapters later, in Acts chapter 10, God is going to show up and reveal to Peter that he is thinking wrongly about reaching people who are not inside the Jewish faith. He's going to show them that there is some changes that have to happen. So it isn't that true faith is made up of perfect people. It's that true true faith is held by sincere people. We're not perfect. We're deeply flawed. But if we, we truly believe, that's part of our belief system. Like Remember, we believe the gospel is that we are basically sinners at our core. And I don't mean basically sinners like basically kind of a sinner, I mean at our 
bottom denominator, who we are in our most basic sense is we're sinners. We're not good, and then we made a mistake. We're bad. My heart is evil. My heart is always manufacturing ways to look to something else. Pastor Eric talked to us about the Ten Commandments and talked to us about how we must make God, we must have, the Lord must be our God above all other gods. And we don't worship statues, but we're constantly creating something else to worship. Right? You don't have a statue at home that you worship, but you got one in your pocket that you carry everywhere with you. For some of you, I'm talking about your wallet. For some of you, I'm talking about your phone. We believe that our hearts are desperately wicked. And so, knowing that, we are constantly in need of God to correct us. And so, faith is resilient, and because it's resilient, it'll be revealed, and because it's resilient, it'll always be reforming. This was a true faith, and it was, it was going to stand the test of time, but it was also going to have to be reformed again and again and again and again. That's what renewal is. It's, it's change. And it's, it's, it's strange that Baptist churches are often so opposed to change because that's what we're supposed to be about. Right? But change the bulletin or, or change if we stand or sit for that third song, right? And like, ah, I don't like this. This isn't how we normally do it. But renewal is change. And that's what's happening in Jerusalem in this very instant. They're experiencing renewal. These were religious people. And it isn't that Jesus showed up and changed the script on them. It isn't that Jesus got to the temple and said, you know what? I know we've been doing this for 2,000 years, but I'm going to completely reorient it. No, Jesus is saying, you have completely lost the script. You have completely lost what this is supposed to be about. I don't recognize what you're doing right now. You've made this, this place, instead of a house of prayer, you've made it a marketplace. You have completely lost the plot here. And he's bringing them back. And so when we change and we reform, it's not because we're going in some new direction. It's because we're constantly coming back to what it is that God wants us to do. We're constantly coming back to what He's called us to be. We're constantly called, coming back to Luke and to Acts. We're constantly coming back to the very basics, to the elemental Christianity. We don't need to change what Christianity is. We just need to rediscover what it's always been. And by the way, Gamaliel seems to be open to this idea. Because he says in verse 39, you need to be careful, guys, because if you kill these people, it could be that you're working against God himself. And Gamaliel, I, he seems to be sincere enough to, to say, like, hey, we need to let this play out because maybe they're right and we're wrong. He says, if you cannot overthrow it, you need to be careful. You might be fighting against God's work himself. So because true faith is resilient, it's revealed. Because true faith is resilient, it's always reforming. And because true faith is resilient, it's reproducing. 
Seth Godin, who, who writes on marketing, says that good marketing for a bad product just makes it fail faster and bigger. And, and if we think that, hey, man, what we need to do to really grow the church is we just, we just got to market it more, got to get the word out. There's a place for that, but if what we have here is not true faith, it's not authentic Christianity, we're just bringing people into something that's eventually going to fail. It's not going to last. True faith is reproducing because it's resilient and lasts. The end of this chapter, the priests, they agree with him. They beat the disciples anyway. They tell the disciples, don't speak the name of Jesus. And the disciples are like, yeah, good luck with that. We're going to keep talking about Jesus. doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter what you say. The only way to stop us is to kill us. And kill us is to send us home. So you're doing us a favor. Do you know how impossible it is to force people to do what it is you want them to do when they have this mindset? You can't threaten them. What are you going to threaten the disciples with? Eternity with Jesus, their Lord? They get beaten up and they walk away rejoicing, happy, thankful. Christians, we haven't been beaten up and we struggle with this. Because somebody said something on Facebook that we don't agree with because some new politician got elected and we don't like them. Listen, the true faith should look like this. And Jesus was constantly working to prepare the disciples that no matter what they faced and what they went without, that they would have joy and peace. And that's, that's what they have they got punched in the face and they walked away praising God and, and honored that they were counted worthy to suffer in his name. They're living out what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner against you falsely. For so they did to the prophets who were before you. That's resilience. And, and, and the resilience that, that true, elemental, basic Christianity has is not a resilience of like, oh, we just got to get through this. Lord's coming home, coming for us one day, and we just, we just got to get through this. It's going to be miserable. No, that's not the way that they lived. They were full of joy in the face of persecution. What do Paul and Silas do when they are beaten and thrown in prison? They sing praises to the Lord at midnight. If you remember Timex's old slogan, say it with me, takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Right? Everyone under the age of 25 is like, what just happened? What was that? <laughs> that was Timex's slogan for decades. 
They had originally tried to market their watches by putting them on the wrists of celebrities, and the everyday common man just wasn't super persuaded by that. And they switched their marketing to be that Timex takes a licking and keeps on ticking. And they used those slogans, and the average ordinary man said, if I'm going to spend a lot of money on a watch, I want it to last. Now, today this is a foreign idea to us, because you don't buy a watch because you need a watch. You buy a watch to be some jewelry piece, right? Because we carry phones with us constantly. Back then, watches were expensive. They were hard to make. It was, it was a major purchase, but you needed one because you wanted to be on time. I know some of you, that's a foreign concept, being on time. But some of us wanted to be on time, wanted to know what time it was and when we needed to get someplace, right? Back then, watches were expensive. I, watches are so cheap now. I mean, you can get them. I remember we, when I was serving at youth camp, um, and our phones had no service, and it was always so bright, you couldn't even see your... And I, the guy, there was a guy, every day he would run to the Walmart, um, you know, that was a long ways away, and he'd go to the Walmart, and you could tell him what to buy you. I said, buy me an $8 watch, right? People 40 years ago, an $8 watch, that's crazy, right? And it was something I was buying just to wear for five days and then throw away, right? It, they became cheap, but back then it was a major purchase, and something that you would need to rely on. And they often broke, and so Timex communicated, our watches, they stand the test. And I remember in the 80s, when I was a child, there was one commercial that they had to show just how much Timex could take a beating. They took a Timex watch and they duct taped it to a sumo wrestler's belly. Anybody remember this commercial? And the two sumo wrestlers ran against each other, just collided. Right? And then the sumo wrestler with the watch on his belly gets thrown to the ground. And they, they zoom in on the watch being smashed underneath this guy's stomach. And then he stands up and the watch is still telling time. You know, Timex takes a licking and keeps on ticking. You know what advertisers call that type of ad? They call it the torture test. It's when you show a product that it can stand up to great pressure or torture, rough conditions. It's when they have a truck pulling something that's just huge up a hill, right? They're showing you it can, it can withstand it, that it's resilient. What we have in Acts chapter 5 is that true, real, authentic Christianity is resilient. And not just that it takes a licking and it keeps on ticking. It takes a licking and it keeps on singing and praising and worshiping and telling. That's real faith. It can stand the test of torture and keep on singing. That's real faith can stand the, the test of great pressure and horrible conditions, an oppositional environment, less than ideal, and keep on worshiping and keep on telling. The ingredients for this kind of Christianity, that's what we need. 
And everything that we've done over the last several years has been trying to, to just let's, let's, let's peel off anything that isn't that. Let's get back to that. Let's focus on that. Because that's what we need. That's what we're desperate for. That's what will last. That's what will reproduce. That. And I believe that that kind of faith is a great apologetic to the world around us. That that kind of faith is the kind of faith that is convincing and appealing and moving. It's compelling faith. Faith Church, one of the things that that we must do, not that we can do, not that we ought to do, that we must do for our community is have real faith. Have real compelling faith. A faith so strong it can stand the test of torture. A faith so strong that it faces adversity and keeps on singing. That's the faith that we must be. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, we want to be real. Lord, we want to be that, that type of resilient. Lord, we want to have that faith that stands the test of time. Lord, I pray that what we have here is not the work of men like was referred to in the passage, Lord, but it's a, it's a work of you. It's you accomplishing only what you can accomplish. Lord, may we not have here a label of Christianity over some selfish motiv- motivation. Lord, may we not have the, the label of Christianity over, over tradition. May it be true faith that has put its faith in you and your sacrifice your ability to redeem and restore. And Lord, wherever there is need in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, may we reform back to that once more. We pray these things in your name. They're going to lead us in song, and I'm going to invite you just to remain seated in a spirit of prayer. Corporate renewal is the product of personal renewal. Corporate reform is the product of personal reform. And the best way for our church to be renewed is for individuals to be renewed. And if this morning you are challenged by this idea, this faith that has been presented, what is the missing ingredient in your heart and life? What is it that is lacking? I want you to take some time and think on that as they sing.